We're here to surrender to you. Lord, if you're calling, we are coming. We're here to worship you today. We're here to worship you in song and in truth. And Lord, now as we look into your word, I pray that your spirit would dwell in this place, that we would feel your presence here, and that you would draw us close to you. In your name, amen. We're glad that you could be here this morning. Obviously, I am not Pastor Seth. He is much taller and better looking than me. Um, But you can pray for Pastor Seth. He's away on a break right now, a much-deserved break, and we'll pray that the Lord refreshes his soul and his spirit as he's away. Uh, My name is Pastor Eric. I'm one of the uh, assistant pastors on staff. I'm over at Community Life, and uh, I have the pleasure of bringing God's Word to you today. We're going to be out of Genesis 9. We're going to be continuing on in our series in Genesis And if you've been following along, you know that uh, we stopped off right around the time where the ark had come on dry land and Noah's family was finally able to come out of the ark. And as a result, it is time for a new beginning. There's a new start. And in fact, um, the title of the sermon is What's Next? And for a lot of people, you can relate to what's next because you've been in that position in life of what's next and maybe not really knowing what's next in life. And for Noah and his family, this was a new start, a new what's next. So I was getting ready for the sermon. I was thinking about a time I grew up as a child back in the uh, 70s. Nobody here needs to do the math on that, but I was a kid in the 70s. And um, we would frequently go over to my aunt and uncle's house for family parties and things like that. And I really loved going over to their house. Um, My uncles, there was three of them that all served in World War II. They're actually my dad's uncles, so they were my great uncles. Um, But we used to love going over to my aunt's house because they had taken all their stuff from World War II and they had put it up in the rafters. So as a kid, we would get down there and we would look at all the stuff that was up in the rafters and we'd try their boots on and try their uniforms on, you know, and the sleeves are hanging down, you know, way, way past your arms. And my cousins and I, we would have a great time playing around in this basement with all this old stuff. So most of that stuff was 30 years old at that point. It had been around for a long time, a lot of dust on it. And uh, one of my uncles was also an electrician, so we had all kinds of like little circuits and stuff, but it was all old and obsolete. So it was a great playground in the 70s, and we loved playing with this stuff. And you know, as you fast forward a few years later, um, my uncles passed away, and we had to go and clean out that house. And I remember all that stuff, we wound up just throwing it away, we wound up throwing it in the dumpster. And you know, there wasn't much value to it anymore. It had become obsolete. Of course, today, the nostalgia of that would be worth a fortune, and we threw it all away. Um, but at the time, it was really obsolete. And when I think about that time frame, you know, for my uncle, the war changed his life. It changed the entire direction. In fact, when they would talk about it, and they didn't talk about it much, my one uncle lived a lot longer and did finally when he got older, but he really referred to things as before the war and after the war. And there was there's two really distinct time periods, and my one uncle had been wounded, and he had to recover from his injury. But really, when they talked about World War II, they talked about how they survived a time frame when others did not. And as a result, it really changed the direction of their life because it gave them a new start, a fresh start in life. And it's moments like these in life where we get to ask the question, what's next? 
what does God have in store for us next? And everybody in here can relate to that in one way or another. If you're young and you think about grade school, you know, when you're fifth grade and if things didn't go so well, well, guess what? You get to go to sixth grade and you get a fresh start. And if sixth grade things didn't go so well, you get to go to seventh grade. But the one thing you don't do is you really just don't stay in sixth grade forever. Right? There's a natural progression where you get that fresh start. And maybe for some of you here, there was a time when you were single. You were living the college life, and you had freedom, and you could do whatever you wanted to do. And then you got married. And that's what's next. Guess what? Everything changes. It's time for a fresh start. And then you, you and, and your wife, you're married, and you know life is good, and you guys can pretty much do whatever you want, and then kids come along. And now everything changes again more responsibility, more things to do, more work to do. And maybe at your job, if you can relate to it, you know, um, in a job, you, you have a certain level of responsibility and you're like, man, life is great. I love this job. And then you get a promotion and you get a promotion. And what do you get? More responsibility, more work, more time at the office. You're staying later. And there's all these steps in life that are the what next or what's next the fresh start that we get in life, the, the new step that we have. And God has a plan for us in each one of these steps in our lives to help us in our spiritual growth, to help us in our maturity. Pastor Seth has been calling this word heavenized. You know, and as we become more and more heavenized, God works in our hearts and our minds to make us more like him and to mold us into the likeness of Christ. So as we read through Genesis 9, you're going to be able to see how God is establishing the what's next in life for Noah and what's next for the earth. And God takes this tiny group of eight people and he begins with them. And if you remember, as they leave the ark, which has been everything to them for over a year. And a lot of people think when they read the story of Noah and the ark, they're, they're reading about 40 days and 40 nights. No, Noah and his family were on that ark probably for a year. You know, as you look through scripture and as they're waiting for the water to recede and they were waiting for uh, the rains to flood the earth, they were on that ark for probably a year. That was their entire life. And if you think about uh, Noah and his family, these, these eight people that were on the ark, they also had a before the flood and after the flood existence and time on the ark. There was a lot of what's next and new starts for them. And if you remember in Genesis 8, they come off the ark finally, and what's the first thing Noah does? He builds an altar, and he makes a sacrifice. And Genesis 8 says it's a pleasing aroma to God, because this tiny group of eight people, the first thing they do is they recognize God, and they recognize God has done something amazing and is going to give them a fresh start and a new beginning. See, the days of old have been done away with, and the ark's been done away with. The ark has served its purpose, and it's not needed anymore. And the big question is, is what happens next? What's next for this small group of people? And if you're sitting here today, you might be asking that same question for yourself. Maybe you find yourself in the same uh, place in life where you're like, what's next? I don't really know. I'm in a place right now where God is moving me in a new direction or has something new, but I don't know what's next. And I'll say to you, as we look through Genesis 9, you're going to see some principles and some, some things that you can easily adapt to your own life and that you can count on God to help show you what's next. So I'm going to ask, as we look at this passage, you turn to Genesis 9 in your Bibles. My hope is that as we study God's word today, we'll get some real clarity 
as we learn about what was next for Noah and what was next for his family, that you'll also find out what's next for you. So if you would stand together as we read Genesis 9. We're not going to read the whole book. It's about 28 uh, verses. We're only going to read a few of them right now. So follow along. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you shall be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiplying in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me, you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. And a little further down in verse 19, it says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham, the father of Canaan, these were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Lord, we lift up your word. God, we pray that your word would be exalted this morning. There's no one here that needs to be exalted, just you need to be exalted. Your word, the way that uh, we relate to it, the things that we learn from it, God, we pray that you would lift it up here this morning. In your name, amen. You may be seated. In Genesis 9, it's interesting, there's a lot of ground that's sort of covered in here, and we're going to take some of these apart. Point number one would be that there's a new start. God establishes a new start for Noah and his family. And we're going to begin our focus by looking at a few of the verses and see how God is giving Noah and his family a fresh start, a new beginning. Things have changed, and it's going to be different from now on. I mean, can you imagine Noah getting off the ark and immediately going back and building another ark again? I mean, that's what he did before the flood, right? He's a carpenter. He built an ark. So what if he came off the ark and then said, okay, well, here's, this is what I know how to do, and started building another ark? Be pointless, there, there was, there's no point to him doing that again. That time was over. Now, if you wanted to build an ark, Noah would certainly be a guy that you would seek out because he could give you some really good advice on what he did. But there definitely is a what's next. God's giving him a new beginning. So we start off with verse number one, where God gives instructions to Noah. He says, be fruitful and fill the earth. 
God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the first job these eight people are getting is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, Noah had three sons. He had Japheth, Shem, and Ham, and they had their wives with them. Those are the eight people that were on the ark. And from them, that's how God was going to repopulate the earth. It's estimated that from the time of Noah, until 18, it took until 1804 for there to be one billion people on the earth. And from 1804 to 1927, that's how long it took for there to be two billion people on the earth. From 1927 to 1960, three billion. In 1988, we hit five billion. And today, we've hit 7.8 billion people on the face of the earth. So I would say this first command, we've done a pretty good job. 7.8 billion people on the earth. But we need families and we need parents just like you. We need people who are being fruitful and multiplying and raising their families in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There's a great task that still, it's a principle for us today. We need godly families. We need people that are raising their kids to understand who God is to understand who their creator is. We need parents that are raising their kids that point them back to their savior, Jesus Christ. That's an important command for us as believers too. We need to raise families that follow the Lord. In verse number two of this passage, God makes a distinction about animals. Now, before we get to the animal part, I want to tell you, when I was a kid, probably about two or three years old, my parents took me down to this little pond in Cape May Point to feed the ducks. And as we were feeding the ducks, this gigantic swan came out of the pond. This thing had to be nine foot tall and chased me all over the pond. I was terrified. Didn't like that swan. And a few years later, my parents brought home this little feral cat that they thought would be a good little house pet for us. And I went up to pet this little kitty and the thing scratched me all over my face and all over my arms and we had to get rid of the cat. A little while later... We're on vacation down in Virginia, and I decided to go out for a jog. While I'm out for a jog, this Virginia hound dog looked at me as a giant walking milk bone and decided to chase me. And for about a half mile, I had to run top speed to get away from this dog. A few years ago, Joy decided it would be good if we took a trip down to the Florida Everglades. (laughs) You ever seen the signs of warning when you go into the Everglades? There's pictures of alligators, crocodiles, panthers, black bears, snakes. I don't have a great track record with the animal kingdom. (laughs) However, this is an important verse for us to read. When we read verse 2, it says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. God miraculously changes the psychological makeup of animals in this passage. It wasn't like this at the time of Adam and Eve. It wasn't like this in the time of the uh, the garden. These, These animals were all on the ark with Noah. They probably had to interact with Noah and his family. They fed him. They cared for him. When the doors of the ark opened and the animals went out, God changed the psychological makeup of animals. And scripture tells us now the dread of humans is upon the animals. God puts a hierarchy in the place with these animals. You know, animals don't have a soul. They're not made in the image of God. 
man is made in the image of God. That dog that you love is not made in the image of God. The cat that you love is not made in the image of God. You, mankind, are made in the image of God. And there's something interesting that a a seven-ton rhinoceros, if you walk up on it, it's very leery of you as a human. Why would that be? I mean, could you imagine if all these animals got together and had a conspiracy? You know, they start talking to each other about what they were going to do to man. Now, I believe they may have done that to me on several occasions, (laughs) but I can't back that by Scripture at all. God has put the dread of humans into animals. He's changed their psychological makeup. And it's called giving man dominion over the earth and dominion over those animals. And it goes on further. It says that God gives animals for food. In verse 3, it talks about how all of the animals are given to us as food. He gives greens and he gives the animals. You know, probably up until this time, man was very much a vegetarian. Probably just ate the greens and ate the herbs. And there's something to be said when the Apostle Paul talks about um, being fed on milk when we're younger in the Lord and we graduate on to the heavier things of Scripture and the heavier things of theology and doctrine. Man started off very light in the beginning of Genesis and God is now giving us more substantial things to eat. And in verse 3, it's pretty clear. He says, he gives all those things. They shall all be food. Every living thing shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So if you think about it, if the animals eat the green plants and we eat the animals, why do we need vegetables? Right? You just get your vegetables through bacon and through hamburgers and that kind of stuff. Right? They eat the greens. Kids, don't try to use that argument. It will not work. Guarantee it. But it reminds us that God gives us the animals for food to eat. You know, Peter really struggled with this. When you read in the New Testament in the book of Acts, in Acts 10, 10 through 16, Peter was really struggling with uh, not eating the same things that the Gentiles were eating. And in fact, he, Scripture says he pulled away and he wasn't, he wasn't partaking in food with them. But then he has a vision in Acts 10, uh, 10 through 16. It says, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken up to heaven at once. You know, Peter was struggling with this issue and God reminds him that he's given him all of these things to eat. Now, of course, in Peter's natural way, what is, he's got to require it three times. The Lord's got to tell him three times before it actually gets through. And we've seen this pattern with Peter before. But God clearly tells him, Peter, it's okay. I gave these things for you. These things are for your nourishment. These things are to help you grow strong. You know, it's the same with Scripture. There are easy passages and then there are difficult passages. There's passages that we have to chew on a little more. But they help us to grow spiritually. They help us to deepen our walk with the Lord. They help us to understand His heart a little more. And they may be hard passages for us to grasp and take hold of, but they're things that we need to chew on and really understand what God's telling us. He goes on in verse 4 and he gives us some distinctions, even about eating the animals. He says, no eating of the blood. He said, because that's where the life is. 
He makes it real clear. He says, but you shall not eat flesh. That's life. That is its blood. We've seen this before in Acts 15. It goes a little further. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and what has been strangled, and from blood. See, in this new start, God is giving Noah some new rules about how the earth is going to operate. Part of having a new start is maybe understanding that things the way they were are not going to be the same way moving forward. And God is trying to make some distinctions for Noah and how he and his family should live their lives. And you're going to live your life a little bit differently than you lived before. See, part of having a fresh start is letting go of the past, letting go of maybe some of those bad habits or things that you thought before, but now God is maturing you in your spiritual walk and you realize, I've got to look at this a little different. And God is establishing these new rules and these new things for Noah and his family. And as he does that, he gets Noah to kind of turn his attention towards some other critical issues as well. When we go to verse 5 and verse 6, we start to see the first judicial authority being established. This is the first time we see Noah is now going to be the kingly governor, the priest, and the judge. God decides to give him further instructions for this. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from the fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. We're beginning to see that God is really establishing the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. And that's not something that we want to take lightly. So here's Noah with eight people, seven other people besides himself, and he's giving the delegated authority from God to be their new judicial authority. You know, we see this theme carried all through Scripture. We see it goes on a little further with Moses when he gets the Ten Commandments. When Samuel writes out a constitution for for Saul when he becomes king, we see this whole development of this judicial authority all all the way through Scripture. And Noah is given the authority to protect the image of God. It's highlighted right there for us. And he's given the authority to protect it through judgment, through fear of punishment, through reckoning. And the deeper this gets for Noah, the more he has to understand out of this eight people is going to come the whole new world. And he's got to establish some rules by how man's going to live. Because at some point in time, there are going to be 7.8 billion people who are made in the image of God. There are 7.8 billion people that need to have a healthy government and society that is founded on the principles of God's word. There's going to be 7.8 billion people that need to understand that being made in the image of God has a serious connotation with it. When we get rid of the principles and we can't hang on to 10 basic commandments about the image of God, we're in trouble. And as a society, we need to pray and we need to have influence where we can. And try to bring people back to an understanding that man is made in the image of God. You know, our state and local governors and and government have authority delegated to them. They take an oath of office 
In today's world, when you take an oath of office, you go in, you put your right hand on the Bible, or you put your left hand on the Bible, you raise your right hand, and you repeat an oath that you swear to protect the Constitution of the United States, and you swear to protect man and all this stuff. So help me God, is what you say at the end, with your hand on the Bible. That's the oath of office that's taken. And this whole idea of judicial authority dates all the way back to the time of Noah. Where did we get this idea in today's world? started all the way back here in Genesis 9, when God says we need to protect the image of God. We need to protect man because he's made in the image of God. You can't shed the blood of man without a reckoning. Reckoning has to be made for that. And this whole idea of government and this whole idea of authority dates all the way back to this time. For me personally, you know, I've been fortunate in my life to serve in different capacities uh, in the government uh, in a part-time role, and I've taken that oath myself. God's opened the door for me, and I've had people ask, like, why would you do that? Why, why would you, as a pastor, also work in local government? Because it's a chance for me to have an influence. It's a chance for me to speak into the local government and say, hey, man is made in God's image. We need to be careful how we care for them. We need to be careful of the things that we say and the mandates that we put out there. Because God will demand a reckoning when we take our society in the wrong direction. You know, Noah received this delegated authority for, from God. And for years, Noah would be the authority. He would be the pastor. He would be the governor. He would be the magistrate, the, the decision maker of the land. And both civil and pastoral things, he was going to decide on. Now, in our country, we have really separated pastoral and civil decisions, haven't we? It's a spiritual issue. It gets decided by the church. Luckily, it doesn't get decided by our courts. But we have legal issues that get decided by our courts and don't get decided by pastoral. In some countries, they kept those two things together, and I don't know that that was a great thing. But in our country, we see that those things are separated. And as Noah has the authority to be over these things, as time goes on, it says Noah lived for almost 350 years after the flood. Can you imagine the amount of people that would come to Noah to get decisions made or when disputes come up? People are people, even back then. So you know that there was disputes and there were things that had to be decided. Well, as we go further on and we read down in verse 11 and 13, God talks about a covenant, a promise that he makes between himself and man. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Bow, the word bow there, we're familiar with the word rainbow, but the word bow actually is the same word used for a bow that would be a warrior's bow, bow and arrow. And if you look at it, like if it was laying down sideways, that's what it would look like. And God uses this word. He says, I will never use this to judge the earth again. And the symbol of the bow is the symbol of God laying down this weapon of judgment. And he will never use this weapon of judgment again. You know, things, emblems like this um, can be taken and distorted. And obviously in our culture, that symbol has been taken and distorted. But when we see that as Christians, we should look at the rainbow and remember, that is a sign of awe and wonder and a promise between God and man. 
that he will never judge the earth again. That is what that symbol's for. When we look at a rainbow, I mean, even today, when a rainbow appears in the sky, what do you say? Hey, come look at the rainbow. Why are we so drawn to a rainbow? We're so drawn to it because that's what God has used as a covenant, a promise between he and man, that he will never use that weapon of judgment again against the earth. God puts this weapon of judgment away and he won't use it again. The covenant is the agreement that God has between he and man. And you know, as we read further, we come down to the end, it says the sons of Noah who were from birth, we read about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from all of these people, the whole earth was dispersed. You know, when you think about what God has done during this time and this new start that he's giving everyone, he gives a lot of different instructions and orders and different things and ways that he wants to see the world conducted now from how it was before. And there was a time before the ark where the world was a very sinful, very hateful, very violent place. And God's establishing this new way that the earth is going to be. But yet, even with him establishing some, uh, how the earth is going to be, we see some old sins creep back in that have to be dealt with. And as we read a little further on in Genesis, in, in verses 9, 20 through 23, we're going to see that some old habits, some old sins kind of creep back in. If you have your Bibles, just look in, G- in Genesis 9, 20 through 23. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we have this passage here. You like to say, what happened here? We've got a new start, a new beginning, this great new thing that God's establishing. And now we have these four verses that pop up. It's kind of a weird four verses to all of a sudden have in the middle of this message on Genesis 9. Well, point number two is we see old sins still have to be dealt with. We may get a new fresh start in life or a new beginning but sometimes these old habits still need a reckoning. We see that Noah has changed jobs. He was a carpenter, right? He built an ark, spent a lot of time doing that. Then he was a captain of a ship, did that for about a year, stayed on the ark. Now he's off the ark and he's got a new career. His new career is he's a farmer and he plants a vineyard. And out of that, he probably uh, obviously plants some grapes and he makes wine And from this passage, he drinks too much wine. And then he winds up laying naked in his tent. And, you know, we could see all kinds of different arguments about this. We sort of look for, well, Noah didn't really sin by having a vineyard. And he didn't sin by making wine. And he didn't sin by drinking wine. And we have some other passages in Scripture that we have to kind of weigh out. Ephesians uh, 5.18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In Titus 1.7, it says overseers should not be drunkards, should not be addicted to wine. And, you know, we can make some arguments that Noah drank in excess in this particular place. Noah also did not sin by being naked in his tent. I'm sure that that was fine for him to do that. But yet we see this whole thing, this whole episode comes down to his son discovers him like this. And one of the sins that comes out is his youngest son, Ham, 
decides to sin by being slanderous and gossipy and ridiculing his father to his older brothers. Ham was probably envious of his father. He was probably envious of his father's authority, his father's authority to rule the land and be the the governor and, and the magistrate and be the spiritual leader. And he uses this opportunity, instead of restoring dignity, he uses this opportunity to ridicule and gossip about his father. And he comes out and immediately says this to his older brothers, you would not believe, guess what state dad's in? Guess what our father did? Can you believe this guy? And what does Shem and Japheth do? They get a cloak. They get a garment. They walk backwards. And they restore their father's dignity. Proverbs 20.19 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. See, there's great honor in restoring someone's dignity. Remember when I worked in camping ministry so many years ago, we had this this guy, his name was Russell Beaver. Older gentleman, loved the guy. He was probably one of the most joyful guys I ever met. But Russell was old. And uh, he was in his 90s when I knew him. In fact, the joke was when Russell drove down the road, he would hold his hand out the window. And when he felt the trees, he knew he was too far off the road and he would pull back on. But we loved when Russell came around because he would give an encouraging word. And I'll never forget, one day Russell came down to camp and he drove right through the fence. He never saw the fence, took out the whole fence. And this other guy, Dominic, was there and Dominic just picked up the fence and he threw it in the trash. And I remember I said to Dominic, I said, "Uh, are you going to tell him he did that? And Dominic said, no. He said, I I don't want to hurt him. That'll just hurt his feelings to know that he did that. He'll, He'll feel terrible. And as Russell got even older, as you can imagine, they had to take away his car keys and his driver's license because it was just a really unsafe thing for Russell to drive anymore. And Russell's mind wasn't quite what it used to be. He couldn't quite remember things. But my friend Dominic would go over to his house and he would cut his hair for him every couple weeks. And he would give him a shave. And he would make sure that he had a clean shirt on. And he restored Russell's dignity in a time period where he couldn't. And when I look at a passage like this, I see these two older brothers restore their father's dignity. Even when someone else was ridiculing them, trying to make this guy look bad, they restore his dignity. There's great honor when we restore someone's dignity. These two men followed principles of God's grace and mercy, and they covered their father in a respectful manner. Have you ever done that for someone? Have you ever tried to help restore someone's dignity, show mercy, and overlook something? How many times has God done that for us? How many times has God restored our dignity and overlooked our shortcomings and overlooked the things that we shouldn't have done? But God shows us mercy and shows us grace and restores our dignity. The lesson that we learn from these passages that you know, pop up here in the middle of Scripture is that even though we may have some old sins, God shows us great mercy. And he gives us even greater mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, and gives us a way to be reconciled to him. The third thing we need to look at is what is our future hope? And we find at the end of Genesis and, uh, end of Genesis 9, Genesis 9, 24 through 29, as we le- read a little further on, It says, when Noah awoke from his 
wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and the sons were born to them after the flood. You know, when we see this whole idea of new hope, you know, there's consequences for what happened in Scripture. There's consequences for what happened and, and what Ham did. When Noah wakes up, he knows, comes to his senses, he knows what happens. And there's consequences for Ham. Ham's son was Canaan. And immediately Noah curses the sons of Canaan. You know, I've often wondered, I wonder if Canaan was part of this. We don't really know for sure. But we do know out of Canaan becomes a group of people called the Canaanites. And as you read further into the Old Testament, we read what happens to the Canaanites. Joshua is told to wipe out and destroy the Canaanites. And you know, for Noah, it says that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. It says he was 950 years old. That's pretty old. And often I've wondered, even with this passage too, you know, God punishes Ham and God punishes Canaan, but is there a punishment for Noah? Does Noah just get off scot-free from getting drunk and being naked in his tent in this whole incident? Because I don't really read about anything where God reprimands Noah. But I will tell you this, Noah lived 950 years. I would imagine in 950 years, you would have a lot of stories to tell. A lot of good things that happen. But yet here, recorded in Scripture, for 7.8 billion people to read, is the story of Noah being drunk and laying naked in his tent. I think Noah received a little bit of a reprimand in that this incident was immortalized for all time and all people. I mean, could you imagine if the worst thing you had ever done was put in Scripture for everyone to read for all time? You know, it doesn't take away from how God used Noah, but it does remind us that God can use anybody. And whatever shameful thing may be in your past, whatever thing that you may be embarrassed about, God can use our tragedies as a source of learning to help us move forward and help us grow in Him. When we read the lineage, it tells us that God gives us a new hope, that God takes these eight people, and over a course of time, He uses this lineage through Shem, who becomes the father of Abraham, who becomes the father of David. And we know who comes from the line of David. The Messiah comes from the line of David. You know, sometimes when we read lineage, we don't understand the importance of all these names that are listed in here. But as we follow it back, we realize God did a great thing out of Noah. And you know, to really get a fresh start in life, we need to let go of the past We may need to deal with some sin that's in our life, but we need to have hope in what the Lord's going to do. And our prayer today is that you would have hope in what the Lord can do in your life. And just like Noah, God can give you a fresh start and a new beginning. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and, and God, we thank you for the story of Noah. 
your word has to be exalted, God. We learn from your word each time. And there's so many things in this passage that are so rich for us to learn from. God, you put authorities in position. Romans 13 says, the people that are in authority positions in our world, you have put them there for your purpose. God, help us to have influence where we can and help us to steer those authorities in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Help us to raise families that respect you as the creator, that know your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. God, help us to take these passages in Scripture. If we're in a place where we need a new start, where things just haven't gone so well, but yet you are giving us a new beginning. God, I pray that we would be people that let go of the past, that deal with those sinful things in our lives, and that have hope in the direction that you're taking us. I pray this in your name. Amen.